The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome, everybody, to The Exchange. I'm Tyler Matheson. Stocks are higher today. The Dow up 5% this week, 14% this month. That is its best month in 46 years. But as the market turns its attention from earnings to the Fed, can this rally continue? President Biden thought he had a deal to avoid a railroad strike, but a second union now rejecting that deal, making a strike a very real possibility and a very real threat to the economy. Plus, recession fears have sent people into health care stocks. That sector up 9% this month. We will have three buys and a bail to keep your portfolio healthy. But we begin with Seema Modi on the rally. Hi, Seema. Pretty strong day, Tyler. Stocks are on track to end the week higher, but we still have three hours left in trade. Take a look at the screen. Dow Jones Industrial near the highs of the day, up 700 points. S&P 500 up 74. The Nasdaq seeing an over 2% gain thanks to what we're seeing with shares of Apple. But there has been this active debate around growth versus cyclical sectors like the industrials. Just take a look at Alphabet. First, we start with tech. On track for its worst week since mid-September. Names like Meta, Microsoft, all sitting on sizable losses for the week. Compare that to what we're seeing in the industrial space. Caterpillar on track for its best week and month since July 2009, following strong earnings. You can see up 14.5% this week. Honeywell up 11%. So you clearly have seen this outperformance. Industrials on average have been growing their profits in the third quarter, up 19%. Compare that to technology where profits have fallen by around 1.2%. And when it comes to valuation, industrials trading at a discount to technology. Price to earnings ratio of 19 times technology, which has even seen a number of declines this month, still trading at 22 times forward earnings. Next week, we do get a number of earnings from AMD, Qualcomm, PayPal, comments from the industrial space. So perhaps we'll get more clarity on this trade next week. Tyler, back to you. All right, Seema, thank you very much. Meantime, rates retreating this week with the 10-year dipping uh, below 4%. That's 10-year Treasury. Market watching some key recessionary indicators along the yield curve as well. Rick Santelli at the CBOE today with more. Hey, Rick. Absolutely. At the CBO today, and of course, we are cognizant of the fact that the VIX index is on pace for What, a six-week low close? And if we look at two-year for the week, we could see what Tyler's talking about. We closed at 447 last week. We're down seven basis points on a two-year on the week, even though it's up on the day. Look at tens and realize the 24th, far left, there was a high-yield close for the cycle at 422. So you could see that uh, we are definitely, excuse me, at 424. We closed Friday at 422. So we're down about 22 basis points as we flirt with 4%. And maybe the big story is, 10-year yields have dipped under four, but the story about dollar index has everybody excited. Has the dollar index turned? Is that going to take pressure off of other economies, third world economies, uh, developing economies? Well, I can tell you this. Look at a two-year versus the dollar index year to date. It's tracking almost one-to-one. It makes sense. The dollar strength has been on the Fed, and the two-year follows the Fed. 
But as you look at August 1st, pairing the dollar with the tens, you see divergence there. And the divergence is the dollar's going down, but 10-year rates going up. That is very important because many are reading that the dollar is what you're supposed to pay attention to and that it will turn the 10-year down. And if that is the case, maybe it really lends some credibility to the three-month versus 10-year. Three sessions in a row, it's been inverted. It's minus seven now. It hasn't closed uh, with this type of version since right around March of 2020 for COVID. And the T-bills are marching right along every week with their auctions and going higher right with the Fed. But the 10-year is marching to a lot of different issues, not the least of which is potential recession in Europe and slowing here. Does the inversion mean in six months to 14 months we're going to have a recession? I can't tell you that for sure, but what I can tell you is this spread has a good track record. Tyler, back to you. Let's, let's talk about that dollar. Why does the dollar lead the 10-year down? What, what, you said that. You said it's really important. Explain to me why. Because if, if we're considering the fact that we're all trying to handicap when the Fed is going to take its foot off the brake a bit, the wow. dollar index has a global following and it has a need. Funding for dollar-denominated debt across the globe puts huge demand there. So see the demand slacking a bit gives us a global view of the impression that investors have, and that impression may be directly tied to what the Fed may do in 2023. Very interesting. Rick Santelli, thank you as always. Good to see you, and good to see you where the action is out there. We appreciate it. All right, so with leadership change happening in the market, bond yields uh, slipping a bit, recession signals flashing, and the busiest week of earnings still ahead, where to put your money to work? Joining us now, Andy Caprin, co-chief investment officer at Regent Atlantic. Andy, welcome. Good to see you. I'd like to get you to react to what Rick was talking about there with respect to bonds and the dollar. But you are also starting to see some of what you call green shoots with respect to a slowing of inflation. Where are these shoots? Sure. So when you think about inflation, when you think about where prices are, we're starting to see green shoots in particular in some of the things that drove inflation higher over the course of the past year. Look at gasoline down significantly from highs hit early in the summer. Look at things like used car prices, one of the first harbingers of supply chain shortages, shortages of actual physical goods to buy, now turning the corner, solidly going in a negative direction. So things are improving. It's just going to take a while to actually read that through into the headline CPI that we all focus on once a month. I assume you would you would agree that the Fed is not immune to, to noticing these kinds of changes. Do you expect that that means that either their actions or the or the words that accompany them might be a little different come next week? I think they might start to temper the pace as we approach their terminal rate. Now, their terminal rate is going to be very hard to predict because we have not operated in an environment with inflation rates this high and this unpredictable since at least 40 years ago. So the Fed... The, the, the Fed knows almost as little as the rest of us do. They need to observe the data. They need to absorb it. They need to adjust for it. But the most important thing that the Fed needs to do is they need to rebuild their credibility. They made a huge mistake in 2021, in my opinion, by using the word transitory. 
They've been walking that back for the over the course of the past year. That means, in my view, that the Fed is more likely to overshoot rather than to undershoot. Yeah. And it's a good thing for inflation. That may be a dangerous thing for markets, although earnings season so far is pretty supportive well, of the, the Fed, market narrative. The Fed certainly has spent, uh, spent a lot of the last year dining on that word transitory. Um, technology has had a very lumpy week. What do you expect as it moves into the next weeks towards the end of the year? Sure. So I think tech stocks, I think growth in general is in a dangerous part of the market. Rising interest rates do not do it any favors. Investors focusing on free cash flow growth and profitability doesn't do most of the tech sector any favors. This is a challenging environment to be a technology company or on the growth side of the ledger. So what should you focus on instead as an investor? In my opinion, there are still legs in the value trade. The value trade is attractive for, in, in one case because these companies tend to be more stable. They tend to be generated with free cash flow. And this environment is supporting their ability to do so. Let me give you a case in point. Ford. Ford is not a company that you would generally want to buy if you're worried about a recession or a slowdown in the economy. But this time, I believe, is different because over the course of the past 12 months plus, they have not been able to produce enough cars to sell to people. That's supported profit margins. As some of the supply chain kings start to work their way out, they'll be able to grow volumes too to offset lower profit margins going into recession. This recession will not be like normal, in my opinion, and it could actually support normally cyclical companies like Ford. That's a, that's a sort of a classic cyclical. A couple of others, uh, Johnson & Johnson and BlackRock. Sure. Johnson & Johnson stands out as a company with a stable business model, something that is diversified across pharmaceuticals, medical devices, consumer brands, and a catalyst for it to start to perform better is actually a planned split up between some of its divisions. Um, this could reinvigorate some of those businesses, make them focus more on growth in addition to just stable and st stable profitability. Uh, last one I'll point out is uh, BlackRock. So BlackRock is tied to asset values. That's important. But BlackRock also experiences something that most asset managers do not, which is inflows even when the market is down. When the market is down, most asset managers lose assets, not just to market values falling, but also to investors abandoning ship. That's not the case with BlackRock. They experience inflows on a secular basis because of their dominance in the index fund trade. Index funds and I assume retirement uh, accounts as well, where the money is, is just coming in uh, month after month, week after week. Andy, thank you very much. Andy Capron, have a good weekend. We appreciate it. All right. Meantime, the Elon Musk era at Twitter is in full swing, barely 24 hours into full swing. Musk sending out a cryptic tweet overnight. Does he send out any other kind saying the bird is freed in an apparent reference to the takeover being completed? So is this the end of the social media saga or merely the beginning of a new chapter? Julia Borston here with a look at Twitter turning the page. Julia. Well, Tyler, Elon Musk faces a range of challenges, particularly surrounding his commitment to being what he calls a free speech absolutist. That has prompted some concerns that loosened guardrails on Twitter could mean a surge of hate speech and misinformation. So there are three groups of people he has to deal with right now. First, there's the question of how Twitter will retain its advertisers. Musk has looked to reassure them, saying that the platform cannot become a, quote, free for all hellscape, suggesting that users should be able to control the safety of the tweets that they see. Second, 
Employees, reportedly hundreds of them, have left the company in the past couple of months amid uncertainty and reports that Musk was going to fire 75 percent of Twitter's staff. Musk is meeting with those employees today. And third, Musk needs to stem the departure of so-called heavy tweeters. A Reuters report shows that the people who post most frequently on the platform are starting to leave. So Musk has set out some very ambitious goals, including quintupling revenue and quintupling users to 1 billion by 2028 as he looks to turn Twitter into a super app. But if Musk is gonna succeed with those goals and going to take Twitter public within the next five years, which he has said is his goal, he does have quite a bit of work to do. Tyler? Julia, I couldn't help but notice last night as I was getting ready to go to bed, all of the people from the executive suite who have been lopped off as uh, Mr. Musk comes in. Uh, your colleague and our friend uh, um, Deidre Bosa has just reported that all of the data engineers at Twitter ha have either left or been laid off. What's left of his bench? Well, look, this is a company that had about 7,500 employees until recently. You know, hundreds of them have left. The question is whether he's going to really dramatically slim down that employee base. From the, in terms of the executive team, we do know that Ned Siegel, the CFO, and Parag Agarwal, the CEO, as well as other people in those key senior roles have been fired. Now, the question is how or whether Musk replaces them. Remember that Musk is also running a bunch of other yes. companies. So there's been some speculation that he might bring someone in to run the day-to-day -day, uh, Twitter instead of trying to be the CEO of many companies all at the same time. All right. Always a good story. Um, Elon Musk, Twitter, the whole thing. It's been playing out for a long time. We'll see what he does with it. And, and the, really, the, uh, the needle to thread here, it seems to me, Julia, is keeping the place a place where people feel comfortable hanging out. Fair point? And advertisers, and advertisers, yes. remember, you need advertisers to feel like it's a safe space for their brand to be on the platform. And he might want to open the, the floodgates to free speech, but advertisers want to make sure that their brand is not associated with hate speech. Yeah, free, free, free speech is a glorious thing, uh, but it can also uh, turn to hate speech sometimes. All right, uh, Julia, thanks. Appreciate it. Good to see you. Coming up, five days until the Fed's decision on interest rates, with more scrutiny piling up on the central bank. How can Chair Powell thread the needle? There's that phrase again between fighting inflation and full employment. David Wessel will join us next. Plus, the busiest week of earnings season on deck with a number of healthcare companies among the headliners. We'll hone in on the space with a special edition of Three Buys and a Bail. The exchange returns after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. 
That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. The market conversation could change from results to rates with the Fed decision coming out on Wednesday of next week. Another 75 basis points, three quarters of a 1% hike is uh, already priced in, basically. So the key for investors will be the commentary, uh, Mr. Powell's tone. Uh, our next guest is Powell stands uh, at the more hawkish end of the committee, and disagreements may soon break out about the pace of rate hikes. Joining us is David Wessel, Senior Fellow in Economic Studies at the Brookings Institution. David, always great to have you with us. Is the Fed starting to see what it wants to see? Absolutely. The third quarter GDP report, although looking in the rearview mirror, did suggest that the Fed's rate hikes are having the desired effect. Uh, although the GDP did increase at a 2.6% annual rate, that was mostly because of trade. Domestic spending was slow. And of course, housing is taking just an enormous hit and inflation didn't get any worse. So I think that it's beginning to go in the Fed's direction, but it's far too early for them to declare victory. When you look at the numbers and the and the forecast from Amazon, you're looking at a consumer that clearly seems to be feeling a pinch, a pinch of higher costs, a pinch of higher rates. Uh, and maybe a pinch of a slowing economy or more, let me not say a slowing economy because that's not what the data show, but perhaps some anxiety about what lies ahead. Well, I think that most of the forecasters, economic forecasters, expect fourth quarter growth to be slow, substantially slower than the third quarter. And all these reports from companies as, like Amazon, Facebook, all suggest that they too are expecting things to kind of soften. And that's what you'd expect. We were running a pretty hot economy. It got too hot for the Fed's taste. They raised interest rates. The markets reacted. Sentiment in among business people and consumers reacted. And so it's it's working out according to the Fed's game plan. The question is, how? when will they know that they've done enough to slow the economy? And will they be able to take a break soon? Or do they have to keep going in order to prevent inflation expectations from getting embedded in the yeah. Consumer. I remember months ago, David Kelly, uh, whom you know very well, said the, the risk of the Fed is that they do uh, too much too late for too long. I, I think that I think that's right. I, I believe that Jay Powell, the Fed chair, is determined not to go down in history as the Fed chair who undid all the progress that his predecessors had made against inflation. And so it wasn't that hard when you have three and a half percent unemployment and eight percent inflation and interest rates are at zero to say, well, they have to go up. The question is, how much do they have to go up and how what, at what point does the Fed say, OK, we did a lot. Monetary policy works with a long and variable lag. Maybe we should take a pause here and see how the economy is performing. I think we're getting close to that level. I expect I'll raise rates again in December. But I think beyond that. We're going to see some tension, as you suggested at the beginning, between patient people at the Fed who want to wait and see what happens to inflation and hawkish people at the Fed who say at any cost we have to break the back of inflation. 
Talk to me about political pressure that there may be incipient political pressure on the Fed uh, at some point to say, hey, wait a minute, you guys are slowing this. If we go into a a, a recession, a real recession, you're slowing the economy too much. You've got to back off. Right. So um, the Fed has had incredibly strong support from Congress for the last couple of years, particularly during the Trump era when the president was beating them over the head with an anvil. You can beat someone over the head with an anvil. And um, until recently, the Congress has been pretty quiet. But as rates go up, as mortgage rates go to 7%, as people start to expect a recession in 2023, you're beginning to see some noise from Congress. I think the Fed is used to this, but it could become unpleasant. Uh, The Democrats have a bit of a problem because they can't say that the Fed uh, should have tightened sooner because of the American Rescue Plan, because they argued the American Rescue Plan wasn't inflationary. Then they passed this other spending bill, which they call the Inflation Reduction Act. So they're a little bit of an awkward position. But as you know, that never stopped Congress from hitting. And as people worry about inflation, the Fed's going to get blamed. And if people worry about a recession, the Fed's going to get blamed. And Congress wants to make sure the Fed gets blamed and individual members of Congress do not. As you look at the at the voting members of the uh, open market committee, who, if you off the top of your head, I know this is tough. Who is at that more hawkish end of the spectrum with Chair Powell? Who is in the middle? Who is? Uh, well, you cautious? can see. Uh, I can't quite remember who's on the voting roster next year, but if you look at all the presidents, you can see that uh, uh, Loretta Mester of the Cleveland Fed tends to be on the hawkish side. And you can see that Mary Daly at the San Francisco Fed, among others, Charlie Evans, who goes off the committee soon, are people who tend to might be more mm-hmm. to wait. But I think the people to really watch are Lael Brainerd, the vice chair, and the two new appointees to the Board of Governors, Phil Jefferson and Lisa Cook. Um, we know that in general, uh, Lael Brainerd has tended to be on the dovish side. Of course, like all the Fed members, the FOMC members, they're hawkish on inflation. They want to, it's become the priority. But I wouldn't be surprised to see her quietly separate from the chairman. And we don't really know much about what Lisa Cook and Phil Jefferson Mm -hmm. think about monetary policy yet. They're new to the board and they've been basically requiring, you know, reciting the party line. Yeah. So I can see like in January, February, March next year, some of the Biden appointees may begin to get a little antsy about the pace of rate increases. Very interesting, David. No one can take us in the room quite the way you can. Thanks so much. You're welcome. David Wessel with the Brookings Institution. All right, still ahead, the threat of a rail strike is back after a second union rejected a tentative agreement. We're going to look at what is at stake and the impact it could have on the already fragile supply chain. And as we head to a break, take a look at the Dow heat map. Yeah, look at that. There's only one in the red. Um, All but one stock. Excuse me, only one in the red. Everything else in the green. Intel, Apple, Verizon leading the blue chips. Dow Inc., The only one that is negative. How about that in the Dow? It's Dow. The exchange is back after this. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 
Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Uh, markets right now very close uh, to their highs. The Dow high was 762, right now 737 points higher, or 2.3%, ending a spectacular week, ending a, a, a month for the record books. Here's some of the movers this hour, a few sectors. Uh, seeing names hitting all-time highs in stables. You got your General Mills and Hershey and Pepsi in energy. You got Chevron and Exxon both reporting strong results this morning. Uh, so let's check in on two of the bigger stories of the day. Amazon continues to be deep in the red, but off the lows we saw in the after-hours trading uh, when the stock collapsed by some 20%. Apple continues to prove the uh, best in breed, seeing a nice jump, as you see right there. There it is up uh, 8%, $12 at 156.80. Earnings beat estimates. Sales did come in a little softer than expected in some key areas. Now, how about Pinterest soaring uh, as it blows past earnings and guides higher? There you see it up seven, almost 8% at 2361. So what's uh, not working? Well, DeVita, that stock's sinking on an earnings miss and lower guidance. The company saw negative volume uh, trends. It was hurt as well by some labor pressure right now. It is down 28%. Ouch. Seema Modi, she's got a CNBC News update. Hi, Seema. I sure do. Good afternoon, Tyler. Here's what's happening at this hour. The intruder who broke into House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's home shouted, where is Nancy, before attacking her husband, Paul Pelosi, with a hammer. This is according to NBC News. The motive for the break-in and attack remains unclear. Flu season is off to a bad start with hospitalizations at their highest level in 12 years. The CDC has also confirmed nearly 900,000 flu cases and at least 360 flu-related deaths. Health officials are urging everyone over six months of age to get their annual flu shot. In Japan, the government has unveiled a huge $200 billion economic stimulus program. Prime Minister Kishida says it should boost GDP by 4.6%. This as the U.S. and Europe are tightening monetary policy to battle inflation. The stimulus plan also includes big subsidies to cut household electricity bills. On the news, much more on the Pelosi attack and the growing number of attacks on politicians and government officials as of late. That's tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern. Tyler, back to you. All right, Seema, thanks very much. Still ahead, health care has far outperformed the broader market this year, but there are winners and losers in the sector, as there always are. And we got three buys and one bail to tell you about. That's the bail you're looking at. Uh, Gina Sanchez says it continues to fade with the pandemic. The trade is next. Be right back. Welcome back, everybody. Another sign of old economy stocks coming back in vogue for investors. Healthcare, one of the better performers of late, the healthcare ETF ticker XLV, on pace for its best week since June, up more than 4%. Many of these uh, names trading at all time highs and also reporting earnings next week. So, where are the buys? And uh, what's one name to stay away from? Let's, uh, let's be joined by Gina Sanchez. Hi, Gina, Chief Market Strategist at Lido Advisors. Three Hi, buys. Tyler. Good to see you. Three buys and a bail. Why don't we start with one of the buys, and that would be AbbVie. Yeah, so if you look at the three sectors that have really done really well are the three industries within healthcare. One of those is biotech, and AbbVie has been leading that charge. Um, and the performance this year has just been solid because it has a stellar you know, lineup of drugs um, that it is continuing to, to benefit from. You know, there's still questions about what's going to happen when Humira goes, uh, goes generic, um, but the rollout and the continued uh, 
pipeline is still very strong for them. And so it's a it's a stock we've owned for a while and it's continuing to perform. All right. Next buy is Eli Lilly. That is shares hitting an all time high in today's trading and set to report third quarter results Tuesday before the bell. This is your pharma play, uh, Gina, and it's doing well, may even have better prospects next year. Tell us about it. Absolutely. This is actually one where the, you know, the analysts have been revising down expectations because, you know, it's a tough, it's been a tough quarter. This is the first full quarter when their lung cancer drug has had to kind of compete in the generic market. But if you look next year, one of the biggest blockbuster drugs that's coming out on the market is uh, Monjaro, which is the big weight loss drug that's, that's coming up against um, uh, against Ozempic and, and the other weight loss drugs, Wigovi. Um, and everyone is expecting the tests have been extraordinary, and these are very, very profitable drugs. Um, so the expectations are really, really strong, even for next year, and they've already done really well this year. Yeah, and at all-time high. We haven't had to, we haven't been able to say that uh, very often about many stocks uh, in recent uh, months. Final buy is Humana, also hitting an all-time high today, uh, and reports uh, before the bell on Wednesday. You like that costs are down, response to marketing is up, and the outlook is positive. These are three good things. Yes, they absolutely are. If, if anything, this is one where the pandemic-related costs were really a drag on their um, on their profitability. Um, and then the fact that they were able to sell their hospice unit and their personal care unit is also going to benefit um, you know, their outlook. And this is one we've owned for a while as well. Uh, managed care is a space that as we continue to see it, and, and you know, as we continue to see an aging population, healthcare matters. Um, and you know, this is one of those things that doesn't go away even if you have a recession. So um, we've been pretty pleased with its performance. All right. And uh, those are the buys. Here is one to bail on, and it is Moderna. You say vaccine exhaustion is a big reason to avoid this stock. Uh, the bloom has gone off that one, Gina. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the, the numbers, I saw a stat just this morning, only 7 million out of the 70 million vaccinations that were ordered for this round of vaccinations have actually been administered. Um, people are getting vaccine exhaustion. People are certainly exhausted by the concept of the pandemic. Um, and, you know, if you look kind of farther out, they don't yet have a way to transition into a more profitable, um, you know, profitable uh, you know, set of drugs, if not for the fact that Merck opted into the to their mRNA cancer vaccine, they probably would have very few prospects. And, you know, analysts have just been destroying the revisions uh, and expectations for this stock. It has been a terrible performer this year. Um, and yeah, as you said, the bloom has gone off. What do you make of this uh, powerful October rally we've seen? It, it, does it is it a telltale of the future? Is it a bear market bounce? What? You know, I think that the notion of a Fed pivot is out there just enough. Um, we started to see, you know, some, uh, you know, some signs of weakness in, in the market and in the economy that, you know, I think investors are hoping would keep the Fed from continuing forward. The challenge is, is that the Fed doesn't look like it's going to stop. And if the Fed doesn't stop, valuations have to continue to get revised down as that as that short term rate goes up. Um, and so w th this could be a little bit of a dead cat bounce um, if we're not careful. All right. We'll be careful. Gina, thanks. Appreciate it. <laughs>
Gina Sanchez. Coming up, Thanks, Ukraine. Robert. You got it. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky addressing the Yale School of Management. Our own Kayla Tausche was there and got a chance to speak with him. She joins us next with his comments uh, and uh, as Russia's rhetoric ramps up, the exchange is back in two. Welcome back, everybody. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky addressing the Yale School of Management uh, virtually today. Kayla Tausche was in the room, joins us now from New Haven, Connecticut, with uh, what he had to say. Hi, Kayla. Hi, Tyler. President Zelensky is trying to maintain global awareness of exactly what is happening inside his country as the war with Russia appears poised to enter its second year. He's previously made impassioned pleas for the war to end by winter, and increasingly progressive Democrats, public figures like Elon Musk, are trying to advise him on how he should end it. So today I asked President Zelensky directly how he sees it playing out. At this point, will the war end with a battle? or a negotiation, and when? It's a complex thing because it depends on multiple factors. We've shown our resilience as the people. We continue, we are motivated by being the Ukrainians, by being the citizens of this country, from different walks of life, from different nationalities, but we are motivated with what we have, and we defend what we have. This is what depends on us. This is our end target and we are going there, it is also very much dependent on our partners. Well, speaking of partners, two lawmakers who both sit on the Senate Committee uh, for Armed Services from each party, Senator Richard Blumenthal and Senator Lindsey Graham, joined the event. And Senator Graham called for another aid package to be passed before any new Congress is seated that includes both military and economic aid. Senator Blumenthal said he would support such a package and even suggested that the U.S. should redirect Patriot missile systems that were previously sent to Saudi Arabia to Ukraine in Instead, to that, President Zelensky said that he would welcome that. Uh, and he even did, he said that with a laugh. Uh, but he said that what the country needs most in any next package is aerial defense system. He says that's what will allow Ukrainian civilians to come back home to the country, will allow people to attend school and university and go back to work. And he said that was the biggest priority from day one, and it remains the biggest priority today. He was also asked by a Ukrainian student, student in the audience what the rebuilding process looks like and he says it's going to depend on future generations guys back to you so Kayla let me ask but when he says aerial defense obviously you can define that in many ways the Patriot missiles are a form of aerial defense but I assume what he's talking about are actual aircraft uh, and or drones that would uh, be able to not only perform a defensive function but an offensive function well, it is clear that NATO allies have said from the beginning that they will not be providing any type of aircraft that would be uh, seen as an offensive weapon. They have tried to make that distinction from the very beginning. But President Zelensky bemoaned the thousands of missiles that rain down on his country with some regularity and said that they need to be able to shoot down those missiles and that it is their own missile defense systems like the ones that you mentioned that are going to be of utmost importance. Tyler. Was there any uh, discussion uh, in the room or with uh, President Zelensky about uh, President Putin's speech yesterday where he uh, once again went off after the West and asserted uh, that uh, Ukrainian peoples and Russian peoples are fundamentally one and the same. 
Well, Tyler, that speech came up in one of the questions. And while President Zelensky didn't address that specifically, I did ask him about Mr. Putin because Zelensky has made comments about what a course of negotiation would look like and and has said that uh, he would not be willing at this point to negotiate directly with Vladimir Putin. He would negotiate through some other channels, uh, but that so far, he does not know what that looks like. So I asked him, is he calling for regime change? Does he think that the West should be uh, trying to remove Mr. Putin? And he wouldn't say yes, but he did say that it is increasingly difficult to know which directives and which uh, which words are coming from Mr. Putin directly and which are coming from his surrogates or his uh, directives. Uh, but certainly uh, he seems frustrated with the process and appeared to feel that that the negotiations uh, were not going in a productive manner. All right. Kayla Tausche, thanks very much. Reporting from New Haven this afternoon. Coming up, $2 billion. That's how much a railroad strike would cost in trade per day. And it could be right around the corner. The Association of American Railroads CEO on what's next for negotiations after this quick break. And as we head to the break, here's a check on the market. Stocks, session highs now across the board. 768, 2.4% for the Dow, 2.4% uh, as well for NASDAQ. Well, the Biden administration touting uh, its economic victories in an effort to boost Democrats ahead of the midterms. But there are growing headwinds facing the 11th hour rail deal that was struck last month. A second union now, the Brotherhood of Railroad Signalmen, rejected the agreement on Wednesday. Twelve unions are voting on the deal, representing 115,000 total workers. And all 12 need to ratify an agreement to keep freight moving. But first, the first rejection back on October 10th, and, and that union strike could come as early as November 19th. And no matter the size of the group, any strike would halt trains and cost an estimated $2 billion in trade per day as 40 percent of U.S. long-haul freight travels by rail. It would also impact the C, uh, operations of CSX, Northern Southern, Berkshire Hathaway's BNSF, Canadian National Union Pacific, all Class 1 railroads that are currently at the bargaining table. So can a strike be avoided. Let's bring in Ian Jeffries, president and CEO of the American Association of Railroads. It appears to me that two of the required unions have said no to this deal. What, what is the stumbling block and how can it get resolved? Well, good afternoon, Tyler. Thank you for having me this afternoon. You're welcome. Um, first and foremost, I want to thank the employees across the freight rail industry who show up day in and day out and move goods uh, across the economy, do it safely. It's a highly dedicated, committed workforce, and they should be commended for the job that they do. Uh, to your point, we've had six unions ratify contracts to date. We have four that are going to be going out for ratification in the coming weeks. And we have two that uh, initially did not ratify, but we're, we're working on a path forward to ensure that we do not have a work stoppage and that, most importantly, uh, our employees get the well-deserved pay increases and top-tier health care uh, that the package offers. Can you tell us what the sticking points are with those two unions that have voted down? I assume they may be similar or they may be different. Well, I don't want to get into uh, negotiations uh, in the public eye, but I can tell you that the, the tentative agreements that are on the table are based on a, a well thought out and uh, 
uh, comprehensively developed framework that a panel of experts uh, appointed by President Biden uh, assembled. And uh, the railroads stand by those uh, frameworks and the agreements that are based on those frameworks. We're pleased that six unions have, have ratified as well. And we're committed to making sure that uh, that the rest of the unions get across the finish line. Because at the end of the day, uh, this is important to, to make sure our employees are well compensated, get the, the pay raises they deserve. This package would offer the highest pay raises in over 50 years. And most importantly, we need to keep the economy moving. Uh, all stakeholders are focused on ensuring continuity uh, in the rail system and making sure we're continuing to support the economy. Committed to a solution is one thing. Hopeful would be another. Are you hopeful? I'm hopeful and we're committed. Uh, all stakeholders <laughs> are focused on ensuring that uh, we get this across the finish line. Uh, a work stoppage is not in anyone's interest. It's not in our employees' interests. It's not in the railroad's interests. It's not in our customers' interests. It's not in the administration's interests. So all stakeholders are focused on the ultimate goal of making sure that we, we come to fruition on a positive outcome for, for all 12 of our unions. Let me ask a dumb but potentially critical question. Could you just go ahead if two of the unions don't ratify and go on strike? What does that do to the rail system? Uh, could, you, could, you, could you work through it without? them or not? Well, Tyler, as you as you mentioned in your opening, a, a, a work stoppage of any kind could have an economic impact of up to two billion dollars a day. And that's whether you have one one union uh, uh, stopping work or, or, or multiple. And so that's why it's so important that we make sure that all 12 unions get to a positive place at the end of this. And that's our goal. And that's our focus. So when uh, what are the key dates that we should be looking for here? Are negotiations going on right now uh, with you with you representing the railroads and the unions or what? What are the key dates to look for? Well, all parties continue to talk throughout this process, and that's an important point to remember. Uh, right now, uh, the two unions whose initial ratifications did not pass, we're in a continued cooling off period with them, uh, maintaining the status quo of operations, uh, at least up through November 19th. Um, and as I said, we have four additional unions that are going to be going out for ratification mm -hmm. here in the coming weeks as well. And so we've got plenty of time to work through this, and that's what we'll do. And do you expect that those four unions that are going to be voted on the 5th, 14th, 21st of November are likely to approve the deal or not? What's your what's your handicappers sense say? Well, I'm confident that we're going to get these across the finish line because, again, at the end of the day, the most important thing is for our employees to get the, the wage increases that they deserve. These are significant wage increases. These are good jobs uh, that are compensated in the top 10 percent of any sector across the economy, and they should be rewarded as such. Um, so that's our focus, um, making sure our employees get this historic wage increase, maintaining first-in-class health care and ensuring that we can keep serving our customers and communities across the country. Were you surprised that the BRS voted down the uh, deal yesterday? Well, I think in any labor negotiation, you have twists and turns uh, that take place, and nothing's ever as uh, easy as you hope it might be. And um, we're disappointed, of course, but we are pleased that we've had half of our unions ratify, and we'll continue to work to make sure the rest uh, get across the finish line. Ian, thank you so much for your time today. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Ian Jeffries, Association of American Railroads. We appreciate your time. All right, coming up, this restaurant stock is more down more than 5% this week despite an earnings beating some strong comps. Is this name that once had pricing power about to get hit by a spending slowdown? We'll talk about that one next. And here's a check on the markets. 
Stocks are at session highs. Look at the Dow up uh, another 100 points or so, pressing in on 800, uh, 2.5% higher thereabouts. NASDAQ also up by 2.4%. All right, welcome back, everybody. We want to get one more thing in before we go, and that would be the restaurant stocks. McDonald's and Chipotle, uh, there's an E missing there. It's Chipotle. Uh, both reported this week, uh, and CMG was our mystery chart, uh, but the shares are moving in very different directions. Pippa Stevens uh, joins us now with what is driving the difference and with more restaurant names reporting next week, whether more divergence is ahead. Pippa. That's right, Tyler. We heard from Chipotle and McDonald's this week both of which have raised prices to counteract commodity and labor costs. Chipotle hiked menu prices in August for the third time in the last 15 months, while McDonald's said its third quarter quarter prices were up 10 percent year over year. But so far, consumers are more or less buying the price hikes. Both Chipotle and McDonald's beat same-store sales forecasts during Q3, which is the key metric to watch. However, Chipotle did say transactions fell by 1%, while McDonald's noted it's seeing some trade down in terms of customers opting for cheaper items. Looking forward, though, the picture becomes less clear. Chipotle CEO Brian Nichols said there's a widening of trends by income level, with lower income income consumers further reducing frequency. And McDonald's CEO Chris Kemchinski said the company expects a mild to moderate recession in the U.S., with a potentially deeper and longer one in Europe. Now, we'll hear much more about the health of the consumer next week with lots more earnings on deck from different types of restaurant companies. We'll hear from full-service names like Cheesecake Factory and Brinker. Starbucks and Papa John's will also report, as will Burger King parent Restaurant Brands International and Taco Bell parent Yum Tyler. There's a lot of food on the menu for next week. So let's talk a little bit about whether if there is a dramatic pullback in consumer spending, uh, is there any indication of what type of restaurants are going to perform the best? You would think the ones that I, I guess would cater towards a, a lower income individual. On the other hand, um, the people who have got money are pretty much immune or it would seem from from spe- worrying about their spending. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's right. There are two parts of this equation. Um, and to your first point, it's all about trade down. So and typically in, in times of pullbacks, we see customers moving from the slightly higher end, the full service restaurants to more of the quick service, fast, casual names. But then to your point, those companies also cater to typically lower income consumers. And so that was what McDonald's was was noting, that they are starting to see some customers trade down on the menu and get those cheaper items, maybe go for the more value-oriented names. And so that is the key thing to watch here going forward. But also, if we look back to prior recessions in 2008, notably, inflation wasn't as high. And and also, that was before a lot of these companies had developed their digital presences and their rewards programs. And so that's been a really big driver recently. So while we can look back to try and and gauge how customers might respond um, with prices continuing to surge, uh, a lot remains to be seen. We had Wingstop on yesterday. They said 60 percent of their business is digital. I'll bet it's almost the same uh, for Chipotle these days. I don't know that. But Pippa, thanks very much. We appreciate it. All right. That does it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. 
This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.